0: As I mentioned last week, that we would be kind of having a two-part series or two-part sermon uh, on our passage from last week, from Romans 13, 1 through 7. And I know what you're thinking already. Kevin, you know, one sermon I can handle on Romans 13, 1 through 7, but two sermons, I think you're just kind of meddling right now in the midst of all this. But that isn't my hope. Uh, My hope is truly for us to be able to, to look at God's Word, and we're going to look kind of at the end of Romans 13 And then we're going to be looking at some other passages that Paul uh, speaks from in Scripture and some of the other New Testament writers. But last week I shared that the gospel of Jesus Christ directs our engagement with the governing bodies of our society. That the gospel directs how we are to interact with those who are in authority over us. The gospel shapes everything about how we live our life. And I kind of shared a little bit about sometimes the dilemma of politics, that I can support the government if it's the one I elect, and I cannot support the government if it's the one I do not elect. And as I said, and I will reiterate this week, this isn't an opportunity to be political, to endorse any candidate or political party, and it isn't to solve every policy issue or to, to step into any of those things. That's not my hope. But my hope is for us is to see what God's word says, for us to be informed and to be shaped by that as we live out the gospel. I also shared last week that there's really not a monolithic view of how we are to relate to the governing bodies. We have Romans 13. We also have Revelation 13, which kind of paints a very different picture of the governing bodies and the state, and whether that was being referred to as the Roman Empire at that point or a future government it is very different than what we see in Romans 13. We also see that we're called to pray for those who are, who are in authority over us from 1 Timothy chapter 2. We also see in the book of Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when Peter and the apostles are told to not proclaim the gospel. And what do they say? I cannot listen to man. I must obey God. So what are we to do? What are we to do? And as I shared last week, that Paul is writing to those in Rome, and there was a unique context that he was writing to. But he was telling those believers in Rome that they are to submit to the governing authorities, not to just submit to the authorities in and of themselves, but when you submit to those in authority, you're submitting to the one behind those people. Because throughout Israel's history and what we see in the Old Testament— that there is this belief that God is sovereign over all things. That he is in control. Now there is what is God's will and his, as I shared, his antecedents and his consequent will. But that God is in control of all things and working all things to his glorious end. And so Paul is telling them, when you submit, you're not submitting to them in and of themselves, but to the crucified Lord standing behind such authorities. And I believe in our passage in Romans 13, 1-7 and other parts of the New Testament that we kind of get glimpses of what Paul, I think, is also saying. And there's three things that I want us to explore today, church, that I think Paul talks about in this passage and in other passages. That one, the gospel offers an alternative to the ways of the world, that when we can find ways to... To live at peace with the world, we should live at peace with the world. And then there's times when we are called as the people of God and as the body of Christ to offer up a prophetic witness, a prophetic word, speaking truth to power. And that's what we're going to explore today. How do we do these things? How do we go about giving a prophetic word to our culture How do we live at peace? And how do we subvert these narratives that our culture speaks to? So that's the first thing that I want to share with you today, church. Paul articulated varying counter-imperial narratives. Last week, I shared a little bit about the idea that when Paul said that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord, it's a profound statement. Or when the Roman Empire talked about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that was offered. Paul will go on to say in Romans 15, 33, and also in the book of Philippians, that God is the God of peace. That peace that surpasses all understanding comes from Jesus alone. And so what we see Paul doing in his letter to the Romans is he is undermining these narratives that are being fed by the Roman Empire to their populace. And for us today, we must proclaim and embody gospel narratives that are rooted in Scripture. That's the first thing that I want us to know, that we have to proclaim and embody gospel narratives that are rooted in Scripture. Tim Keller, in his book, Preaching, Communicating Faith in the Age of Skepticism, he talks about that there are these kind of meta-narratives that really have kind of sunken into our culture. And they're often things that we don't recognize. But whenever we talk about them, you can kind of begin to see them. These narratives are presuppositions. It's something that we just assume to be true. Now, you may not think this to be true, but our culture, and I'm painting with a broad brushstroke, and I want to say a few of these slogans because you're going to say, yeah, I've heard that before. And then we can back up, and then we don't have time to unpack all of it, but, but there are narratives That are portrayed in our culture. One that you might have heard is keep your religious views private. Y'all haven't heard that before, have you? That your faith has no business in the public square. This idea that you can't take your faith and your faith can't inform how you make decisions. This is often this sacred and secular divide that whenever you're a politician or you go into the public square, you can't talk about Jesus or your faith shouldn't really guide what you do. But that's really not true because there are some in our culture who would say, well, science is the only answer and that we have to seek rationality and that we can have an explanation for everything that we do. But we also have to realize that when we all come to the public square, we all come to it with our own beliefs and ideas. Everyone does. Everyone is operating from some assumption that they assume. They have a picture of the good life, a picture of what, how culture should be shaped or what needs to be done. But we're often told to keep your religious views private. And yet Christians have a responsibility to allow their faith to shape everything that they do. Whether you're a teacher, whether you're an employee at a business, your faith should shape everything that you do. Now, it doesn't mean that you can just proselytize or evangelize whenever you want or however you want. There has to be wisdom involved in that. But we are shaped by the gospel that we take our faith into the public square, that our faith can inform everything that we do. Another narrative that we see in our culture, it says something like this, I am free to do what I wish as long as I don't hurt anyone else. Has anyone heard that one before? I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone else. But we know that's not true. Think about the marriage relationship. If there's a husband that says, I'm not going to change and I'm just going to do whatever I want to do. Do you think that's going to go over very well? It's, it's not. In the marriage relationship, it, it, it takes sacrifice. There's sacrifice, and so in some ways you have to give up some freedoms to experience a greater freedom in some other place. You can't just do whatever you want with no consequences. It doesn't work that way. You have to sacrifice. And so when we say that you can find true freedom in Christ Jesus, that when you give your life to Jesus, you're able to, be shaped by the gospel in such a way that you no longer, you give things up. And when you give those things up, the world may look at you like you're crazy, but when you give them up because of Jesus, you find a greater freedom in that. When we submit to Jesus, we find greater freedom in our submission to Jesus than in our rebellion to Jesus. There's another narrative that gets thrown out by our culture, it says, what right do you have to tell anyone else what is right or wrong for them? Who's to decide what is right and what is wrong? This idea, this morality narrative, as Tim Keller writes, what do you have the right to tell anyone else what is right or wrong? Who are you to say that? That's what our culture tells us, but as Christians... We are concerned about injustices. We are concerned about the unborn because life is sacred. And we see this in Scripture. We base how we live and what is right and wrong upon God's Word. And we also base it in the future hope of the resurrection. That one day God will make all things new, that the physical matter, that our bodies matter, what we do with our bodies matters. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 speaks to this idea when Paul articulates a difficult passage to understand, but about the hope that we have in the resurrection. But we can be concerned with injustices and for the poor and for the unborn because of what God's word says. And that as Christians, we are to, to, to speak to this truth based upon what we see in God's word. And then another narrative that we see is you, don't, you, you can be yourself and not care what anyone else says. Just pursue your dreams. Do whatever you want. Make yourself happy. I was watching... Finishing up a, a TV show that I watch continuously all the time, and I started over from season one and I finished it to season nine, and then I started over again because it's something that I do. I, there's not a lot of shows I watch, and so I watch the same ones over and over and over again. And at the end of this episode last night, it talked about this idea very much about just do what makes you happy. You got to pursue that. Well, in some ways, but not everything that we want and desire is from God. And when we are filled with this idea that we're creating our identity from scratch. Everyone goes through and young people you will experience this and those who are a little bit older will exp- have already experienced it. But I believe in something called the quarter life crisis. I know there's a midlife crisis. But there's a quarter life crisis that happens and hits you Whenever you graduate from college and you're trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do next, and you graduate and you begin to be obsessed with, I just don't know what to do, and then all of a sudden you see other people and how successful they are, and, and you see these magazines of 30 people under 30 who are making a difference in the world, and, and yet here you are, jobless, you're not in a relationship, and the options are I move back home and live in the basement, or. I figure something else out. And you can be stressed. But there's this idea within our culture that you have to create your own identity. That you're called to fulfill your wildest dreams. And it's okay to dream and to have desires. But so often we base our self-worth on accomplishing those things. On what I've done or who I've become. And so the bar is set really high. We struggle with these expectations of, man, I'm just, what have I done with my life? I'm just nothing. You go back 150 years ago, the bar was relatively low. If you had a job and you got married, man, you were given a pat on the back and, man, you were contributing to society. But nowadays, it feels like that you have to have these grand plans, and everything is magical, and you are pursuing these things, and it's all going to work out. And so you put your identity in those things. And you fail to realize that our, our identity can only be found in Christ. That we are a child of God, created in His image. It's asking the question, it's not, who am I, but whose am I? And so we, as Christians, the way we live our life, we have to proclaim and embody gospel narratives that are rooted in Scripture. And that's what Paul wanted those in Rome to do. He subverted those imperial narratives, and Paul is wanting them to proclaim and embody the gospel in new ways. And we are called to do the same thing. It makes Romans 12, 1, 1 through 2, I think, even more pertinent. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What does that next word say in verse 2? Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to culture, you might say, but be transformed, be changed by the gospel, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, You may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That you are to embody the gospel. That's what Paul was telling them to do. So when we walk through valleys and dry deserts, we do so with hope, patience, and prayer. We allow the gospel to take root into our life and to change us. We treat others as image bearers and how God sees them. We live as resurrection people. We don't live as the world lives, but we offer a different alternative with how we live and orient our lives. We have to proclaim and embody gospel narratives. Our second point, Paul tells those in Rome to kind of remain obscure in your day-to-day affairs. Paul didn't want them to bring a lot of attention to themselves. What does he say in verse 7 to do? Yep, I don't like it. I want to pay less of them. But he says pay taxes, to give revenues, to show honor and respect. He doesn't offer a lot of advice outside of those four things, does he? He even writes to, First, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings kings. And all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So if Paul wrote Rome Romans in AD fifty seven, and at that point Nero had not started persecuting Christians, if Paul likely died around AD sixty seven, and he wrote first Timothy later than that, he probably knew that there were persecutions taking place. And then what does he say in first Timothy? Pray for kings. Pray for the guy who's persecuting us. I mean, Nero did terrible, terrible things. He would take Christians, dip them in wax and pale them on a, a, a pole and then light them on fire to light up the city. And yet Paul here says this, to pray for kings that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 also speaks to this living a quiet life. He tells those believers there, stop taking each other to court. Don't go before pagans to settle your disputes. You ought to be able to do that yourself. Peaceful and quiet lives. Rodney Stark, in his book, The Triumph of Christianity, he talks about that the martyrs, that we see in the early church also helped spread Christianity. But as sociologists have gone back and examined documents and other stuff, that it was Christians living quiet and dignified lives that the spread of Christianity was able to take off. It was family members telling other family members and friends about this guy who's changed their life. And yes, there were some who were persecuted and others who believed Because of that, but that we see the growth of Christianity took part and in place because Christians likely were leading peaceful and quiet lives, dignified, and telling other people about Jesus. And so for us, we need some patient obscurity. Our second point, we need some patient obscurity, that we need to be peacemakers in our communities. We need to show respect and to show honor. We need to give credit where credit is due, even if it's not from our side. We have to live our life. You wake up and you live your life. As the prophet Jeremiah told those exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 4 through 7, he tells them to go ahead and make yourself comfortable there, plant gardens get married, have kids, build homes, bury people. And perhaps I think we need to be reminded that we too are exiles living in a foreign land, that we are not citizens of this world, but of a heavenly world, as Philippians chapter 3 says. So while we are here, we can't forsake the world. We can't turn a blind eye to things in this world. But let us plant gardens, and get married and build homes, walk through valleys and deserts. Let us seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God, knowing our hope is not in this world, but in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let us live our life in peaceful, dignified ways that leads us to tell others about Jesus, about the freedom that Christ brings, about why the way you live, the way you live, why you have a desire to care for the poor, why you want to protect the unborn, about how your identity is found in Christ alone and not the things of this world. Patient obscurity. And our third movement of what we see in Scripture Luke chapter 22, verse 21, we see Jesus' famous words where he says, Render under Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. Paul, as we've already talked about, subverted these Roman imperial narratives. In sometimes very subtle ways, and then other ways pretty outright challenging them. Namely, that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. A powerful, powerful statement. Paul encouraged his believers to live in obscurity when possible, but not to sacrifice the truthfulness of the gospel. Paul challenged them that find ways to live at peace in an obscurity, but but there's a line in the sand that you cannot cross. We see also in Acts five twenty nine Peter and the apostles told not to preach the gospel, but we must obey God and not man. Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 and 18, in the story of all of Daniel 3, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where Nebuchadnezzar had passed an edict to where they were to worship him. And they basically said, no, we're not going to do that. Nebuchadnezzar said, well, then I'm going to take your life. they were able to testify to who God was. So our third thing that I want to share with you, church, if we proclaim and embody gospel narratives, if we live in patient obscurity, the third thing is this, that sometimes we have to be a prophetic witness. You all know this. You don't need a government lesson, but we live in a constitutional republic. We have representative governments, individuals elected democratically who represent their districts or their state. We have rights enshrined to us in the Constitution. There's some of them, there's a couple of them, the first two, that I value very highly, just to be honest with you. I'm sure some of you do as well. There are times in our country's past where there was civil disobedience, There were unjust laws and people, Christians, faithful followers of Jesus, who resisted those laws. There are times, and I believe will be times in the future, when civil disobedience will be necessary for faithful followers of Jesus. And I'm not going to attempt to speak into those situations of what could be or what might be. But I think there's two things that should guide us as we think about being a prophetic witness in the world. Because everyone thinks about this differently. But I think there will come a time, and there is times, where we have to speak truth to power. But there's two things that should guide us in being a prophetic witness. The first is that we should seek to imitate Christ in all that we do to imitate Christ. We are called to live our lives. As I would say in a book I've read before, that we are a parable of Jesus. Everything that we do should be pointing others to Jesus. Now we have to realize that when we live as a parable to Jesus, we're pointing beyond ourselves to someone else. That we're all imperfect people filled with sin and brokenness. So that while we pursue Jesus and we seek to imitate Him, to be a parable of Jesus, we're going to do this imperfectly. We're not perfect. We're going to mess up. But it doesn't mean that we stop pursuing Jesus. Just because we sin doesn't mean, you know what, it gives you a pass, you can just do what you want now. But there is an ethic of what we see of how Jesus calls us to live, the Sermon on the Mount. Now I would say that it is... Impossible, as Reinhold Niebuhr talks about, one of America's greatest theologians in the 20th century. He calls the love ethic of Jesus the impossible possibility. That when we pursue Jesus, it is impossible to completely live out the Sermon on the Mount and other commands from Jesus perfectly. We can't because of what? Sin. We're broken people. But it doesn't mean that we stop pursuing this impossible possibility. We believe that we're changed, we are sanctified, we grow in our relationship with Christ. But, but when we pursue Jesus, we are also living in this world. We live in this period of already, but not yet fully. Christ has already come, but the kingdom of God has not fully arrived. And so, there are times when Christians need to get involved in politics, and their hands likely will get dirty. There are times when individuals, and as our country has seen in the past, where they serve our country in times of war. Sometimes there are instances when deadly force is necessary from those in law enforcement. There are times when Christians must resist unjust laws. But by doing that, there will be consequences. And so when we pursue Jesus, we are shaped by the gospel. That is the standard of what we are to do and called to live by. But because of sin, we know we're not perfect. And that we can contribute to brokenness in our society. That we are part of the process. But thanks be to God that God is a God of grace. And that grace abounds. But I think we have to always be careful that even when we are pursuing things, when we pursue justice for the unborn, that our actions may not always be completely, completely innocent. That sometimes our hands do get dirty. But we serve a God of grace and a God of mercy who forgives, and that isn't a license to sin, but to recognize that how we live our life will always fall short of what God wants for us. And that there are times that we live in this world where we do got to get our hands dirty. This is called Christian realism, and there are different other views on this, but, but we live in a world that we have to be engaged in. I don't believe, and this is Kevin speaking, that we can abdicate our responsibility to our culture. There's times when I'm thinking, man, it would be great if we can just withdraw and build a wall around it and we just live in our own community, but that's not really possible, is it? But for us to be engaged in different areas within our community and our culture, it's messy, it's confusing. But when we are pursuing Christ, seeking to imitate him, praying for wisdom to give us discernment, and when we do sin, that God is a God of grace and mercy, and he forgives us. We are not a perfect people living in a perfect world. We are a broken people living in a broken world, but we are a redeemed people as well. So we're called to imitate Christ. And the second is this, that we have to love the local church. And I say this, and I've said it before, and I will keep saying it, the greatest hope for the world is not who occupies 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but it's the local church. I don't know if you did the math for this, but when we were able to sponsor those kids with compassion, roughly probably 50 kids, it came out to about $24,000 that our church is sponsoring a year that we raise funds for. Every family, whether you sponsor one child or two children, but $24,000 that this church will give every year to help kids in a different place, in a different country. It doesn't matter who's in the White House, but I guarantee you those kids wouldn't get the care that they needed. But because of what we are doing and what we believe about who Jesus is, we can see lives changed spiritually and physically. As Matthew says in chapter 16, verse 18, and on this rock, talking to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. To me, those are the most encouraging words that I hear, that as you look back over 2,000 years of history, the world has not changed through governments and ballot boxes, but through prayer and faithful Christians embodying the gospel. Did you know that when the Cultural Revolution took place in China, Mao Zedong came to power in 1950, and they began to kick Christians out, missionaries from the West out. They thought at that point that Christianity was going to die. That there is going to be no way that Christianity survives under this regime. And whenever China opened back up in the late 80s, and the early 90s, to missionary activity, when they went in, they found something incredible that had happened. That Christianity had not just taken hold, but it had spread in ways that they could not even imagine. And that is just one example of how the church has been sustained, not by people, but by Jesus Christ, who is head of his church. And I am thankful, thankful, thankful that we live in a place that we have freedoms that many in the world do not have. But for all of us, there is a line in the sand of who will we worship? What will that be? And I know for me and I pray and hope that on that day, if a decision ever comes of what that looks like, that I will be able to have the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that I will be able to have the faith of Peter and the apostles, that I will be able to have the faith of countless martyrs who have gone and lived before who've been able to say, no, I'm going to worship my God. He is the one who is in control and he will save me, but even if he does not, he is still Lord and he is still my God. But it is the local church, it is the local church that is the hope for this world until Christ returns and establishes his kingdom. May we imitate Christ, and may we love the body of Christ. The gospel must direct our engagement with the governing bodies of our society. We do that through proclaiming and embodying the gospel, through patient obscurity, and through prophetic witness, speaking truth to power when that time comes. Let us pray together. Father, we come before you. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for scripture and all that it shows us of how to live and to orient our lives. I ask, Lord, that you be with everyone here today those who are watching online and listening on the radio, God, that, that they shape their lives around you, that they live peaceful and dignified lives, and Father, with wisdom, speak truth to power. God, I know I fail so often at embodying the gospel, living out the gospel, but God, I thank you for grace that comes from you and your mercy and that you're quick to forgive and slow to anger. God, we thank you for what you've done for us through Christ Jesus, that we are able to have a new identity, that we are able to have true freedom, that we are to be able to live our lives oriented around you. Father, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.